I am glad that you came to church today. Of, of all the ways that you could spend a Sunday morning, uh, gathering with God's people has taken priority for Christians for some 2,000 years. But I wonder what brought you here this morning. Was it a sense of duty or obedience? You know, that's actually not necessarily wrong. Hebrews 10.25 positively commands Christians not to forsake gathering with believers on the Lord's Day. Maybe you came for a, another reason. Did you come because you wanted to explore what Christianity is all about? If that's you, that's a, a good reason to come to a Bible teaching church. Did you come because you wanted to see friends or meet new people? The importance of friendship and and fellowship in the family of God, I I do not think should be underestimated or underappreciated. I hope that that's one of the reasons that you came. Did you come this morning because you felt in your soul that you needed to be nourished by God's word? I hope so. Or, Or maybe you came to be encouraged through song. Uh, Interestingly enough, the the psalm that we're going to look at together this morning will give us a glimpse of how the ancient people of God worshipped Him. Uh, This is a useful thing to do, especially if we do not want to be guilty of a kind of chronological snobbery. Uh, It's useful for a more profound reason than that, though. Uh, For in learning from the worship of the ancient people of God, we are learning about our God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And here's something of a spoiler concerning the worship of the ancient people of God. Sometimes they sang songs about sin, much like we did earlier. But more on that later. If you haven't done so, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 53. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can... Find the psalm, Psalm 53, I believe on page 475. 475. And uh, while you're turning there, allow me just to give us a little bit of background on Psalm 53. Psalm 53 is in the Old Testament portion of our Bibles. And as we thought about last week, when considering Psalm 13, we we remember that the psalms find their place in the storyline of the Bible where our expectations that God will send a Redeemer to fully and finally save His people are being heightened and stoked The world has been created in beauty and goodness, and yet the first man, Adam, made a foolish choice in sinning and rebelling against God's good command. And as the old catechisms teach us, in the fall of Adam, all mankind have lost communion with God and are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. However... In God's great mercy and love, He purposed to deliver His people out from under the condemnation and consequences of sin and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer, by His Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Psalm 53 touches on one of the central themes of the Bible by reminding us that Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden has spread to all mankind. It is interesting that Psalm 53 follows Psalm 52, not for numerical reasons, but because in Psalm 52, we were given a particularly nasty example of how sin and evil can corrupt an individual. Psalm 53 is is perhaps something of a pivot away from individuality to universality. 
No longer are we looking at the sinfulness of one man, Doeg the Edomite, in the case of Psalm 52, but now we're looking at the sinfulness of humanity. So while the focus of Psalm 53 is, is different from Psalm 52, it seems as though it might have been placed in the Psalter here to encourage further meditation on the subject of wickedness, the end that wickedness will meet, and the hope of the people of God as they live in a dark and sin-filled world. Read Psalm 53. To the choir master, according to the Mahaloth, a mascal of David, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon God. There they are, in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Now, if you have read through the, the Psalms before and this Psalm seems familiar to you, then that is because it is. The first four verses and the, the first line of the fifth verse are identical, identical to Psalm 14. Even the final verse of Psalm 14 is the same as the final verse of Psalm 53. So why do we have Psalm 53? Well, because the middle is different, of course. Uh, it makes a different point. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 may take their starting point from the same place, and they may have the same conclusion, but a different insight needs to be provided to the people of God. In Psalm 14, the insight is, is this. Your God is with you in this wicked world. So take refuge in Him. And in Psalm 53, the, the insight is this. God will judge the wicked. So look to Him for salvation. In fact, if you're looking for a single sentence that summarizes the message of Psalm 53, then that might just be it. God will judge wickedness. So look to Him for salvation. This psalm has three distinct movements. There is a, a recognition of evil, a reflection on the certainty of judgment. And the psalm concludes with a request for salvation. And if you're taking notes this morning, those three points will form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Recognizing evil, reflecting on judgment, and requesting salvation. Let's begin with our first point, recognizing evil. And as we do, uh, allow me just to read the ascription and the first three verses of Psalm 53 again. Here we're thinking about recognizing evil. To the choir master, according to Mahalath, a mascal of David, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. 
Now, as we read the first portion of this psalm, I wonder if you recognize the depravity that David saw on the earth. And I'm sure you were struck by the low view of humanity. Words, like, uh, words and, and phrases like corrupt, abominable iniquity, and, and fallen away seem to kind of leap off the page at us. This is not a particularly positive psalm so far, is it? Uh, when we think about these words and phrases which describe such a low view of humanity, aren't you all the more surprised by the fact that this is something that was sung in corporate worship? Uh, like most psalms, this poem was handed over to the choir master so that he might lead the congregation in singing this psalm. That's what the statements in the inscription are getting at. According to Mahalath, the mascal of David, these are likely musical or liturgical terms of some kind. You might even have a footnote in your Bible saying as much. Perhaps these are indications of a tune or a tempo. We, we don't really know. But what we do know is that these very dreary words... Um, were to be sung by the ancient people of God. It's a bit strange, is it not? Are we all ready to stand and sing Psalm 53 now? You know, why sing words like these? Because they're God's truth that God's people need to take in and reflect upon. I imagine that if I was back in the congregation of ancient Israel, that, that I would feel a bit uncomfortable kind of singing these words. And, and though my comfort in worship is not unimportant, it is not what is most important. Have you thought about that for, for, for you and for your own worship? Is how you feel about worship or how you feel in worship what is most important? What is most important in worship is that when we sing and pray and give and hear, which are all acts of worship, what is most important is that we remember and rehearse the truth that God has revealed about Himself, His world, and His salvation in Jesus Christ. We must rehearse the good, the bad, and the glorious. And that's why when, when I plan our services, I attempt to, to select texts of Scripture for reading that reflect or, or reference the passage that we're going to be thinking about together in the sermon. That's why when planning our services, I attempt to select songs and music that touch on the passage of Scripture that we're going to think about in the sermon. Uh, when, you, when you think about the, about, about the depravity that David has in view here, then is it really any wonder that we began this morning by singing, He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. We just called ourselves foul in singing that song. right? Why did we sing Majestic Sweetness Sits Enthroned? Well, because in that song we confess that Jesus saw us plunged in deep distress and flew to our relief. Why do we read Romans 3? Well, because it quotes Psalm 53. Why sing, O oh, to see the dawn? In order to remember the cost of our sin and our evil and wickedness. Why sing, speak, O oh, Lord? Because apart from God sovereignly working in our hearts, we are going to say with the fool, there is no God. And so disregard God's word. Now, as a pastor, I am, I am personally delighted if you leave here feeling encouraged. I personally want that. But even more than that, it is my prayer that God has transformed us by the truth of his word. Some Sundays, we're going to sing about some apparently gloomier things. And other Sundays, we're going to sing some more naturally encouraging things. 
whatever the case may be, we're going to let God's word set the agenda for us and think about the truth that is revealed in his word. Now, here's the hard truth that we're looking at today. Mankind is evil. That's not a terribly shocking statement, given what we've read in this psalm, is it? I mean, it is controversial in our day. The idea that mankind is evil is not the prevailing view of most people in the world. That The majority of the people in this world, in all likelihood, think that man is essentially good, perhaps even great in some ways. But the view of the majority does not establish reality. These verses communicate the depravity and sinfulness of mankind in, in quite a powerful way. They communicate this truth through both a progression and an echo. And I want to try and show you that. We move from the individual man to the whole of mankind. That's the progression. While at the same time hearing the same conclusion restated. That's the echo. So let's note the progression. We begin with the fool here in the first verse. The fool is singular, generic, and representative of all of humanity all in one. Interestingly enough... The first readers of this psalm may have had a particular fool in mind when they read Psalm 53. You see, Psalm 52, the one that came just before Psalm 53, uh, was drawn from a particular occasion in David's life, his encounter with Doeg the Edomite. Doeg the Edomite acted foolishly. He acted uh, against God's king. He acted as though there was no God in heaven by slaughtering the Lord's priests. That event is recorded in 1 Samuel 22. And just a few chapters later in 1 Samuel, David meets a man by the name of Nabal. And do you know what Nabal's name means? It means fool. Nabal foolishly rejected God's soon-to-be king, David. Nabal did not utter out loud, there is no God. But it could be heard in his heart when he rejected God's king. Nabal did not proclaim himself an atheist. But he lived like one. And that's precisely what Adam did when he took the fruit from the tree which the Lord God commanded him not to eat. You see, in his heart, he said, there is no God. There aren't going to really be consequences for this action. No one's going to judge me for this. But there were consequences. And that's because there is a God who is holy, just, and good. Children, youth, young adults, do you realize that there is no neutral place between good and evil? Our world would have us believe that we decide what is true and what is good and what is right according to ourselves or a predominant majority opinion. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Because God is the author of this world and everything in it. He has the authority to decide what is good and right. He has the authority to determine what is sinful and what is wicked. And the truth is, he has told us. And the question is, will we listen? Will we listen to him? Or will we listen to our hearts, which are naturally inclined to say, there is no God, I may do as I please. Sin, you see, is the foolish denial of God's existence, even if it is only a momentary denial. The truth is, is that we've all played the fool. This past week, every time we sinned, we said in our hearts, there is no God. William Plummer great Presbyterian preacher once said, is not he a fool who thinks he can elude the scrutiny of omniscience, escape the grasp of omnipotence, or succeed in setting aside the decisions of inflexible justice? 
As I said, there is a progression in this psalm. This fool is singular, generic, and representative of all of humanity, all in one. And it's only natural that we move from the fool to they. They are corrupt. Not only are we progressing toward plurality in the psalm, but we're also progressing toward perversity. Progressing from corrupt as a state to corrupt acts revealed in doing abominable iniquity. Sin is certainly a corrupt act, but it also has corrupting effects. Think of of Adam's sin. It ruined mankind's relationship with God. And it brought ruin to Adam's relationship with Eve. Sin's corrosive effects spread. We know this in some of our own relationships, don't we? Perhaps in a, a dialogue where more coarse language is used, we have been tempted to use coarse language as well. Sin and its impure effects are not easily contained. This doing abominable iniquity mentioned in verse 1 even carries with it the notion of evil affecting the lives of others. The heart that says there is no God is willing to harm those who are made in God's image. Verse 1 concludes with a pronouncement or an evaluation. There is none who does good. Seems a bit dire, doesn't it? None? Really? I wonder if you think that's a bit of an overstatement. Surely there must be one person who is not a fool, one who does not say in his heart there is no God, or live in corruption and do abominable things. You know, sometimes as as human beings, we kind of make exaggerated statements and then we kind of walk them back in due time. But that's when we actually needed to hear the echo of this psalm. It's not enough, apparently, for David to say it once. He says these things twice. There's something of an echo that's taking place. You'll notice there in verse 1, corruption is mentioned, and then it's echoed and mentioned yet again there in verse 3. Then there's that phrase, there is none who does good. At 2 is repeated in verse 3. When David mentions that all have fallen away, what he is saying is that everyone has fallen away or turned aside, and this is but a synonym for having, been come, having become corrupt. David is certainly not walking his statements back from verse 1 in verse 3. And, and we might be tempted to dismiss David's pronouncement of universal depravity on account of the fact that you know, he's just one man. But there are several problems with that. One of which is that David was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit he wrote verse 2. In the middle of the statements made in verse 1 and the echo of verse 3 is verse 2. And this verse gives us a divine and cosmic perspective. God is said to look down from heaven on the children of man. He's looking down on the whole of mankind. He's looking down to see if there are any who understand And that understanding is not just any understanding. It has connotations of a faith-filled understanding. And this becomes clear when we read the phrase, who seek after God. That phrase, seek after God, simply, it's an elucidation, an explication of the any who understand. A psalmist, you see, he's saying, God is looking down from heaven to see if there are any who understand. And by that, I mean any who seek after God. And the implied truth, of course, is that God is seeking, but he is not finding I wonder if you hear in these statements an echo of Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, where we read, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You know, it would be nice if this universal depravity were something that was only true of the Old Testament period. But you know where I'm going with this, right? Paul disabuses us of this notion in Romans 3. And... 
particularly in the passage that we read together this morning in Romans 3, Paul quotes Psalm 14 and 53. And then he confirms that this was not just a problem for the people in the past, but also for all people in the present by saying, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we know deep in our hearts that we're all sinners. We've seen it in the words that we've audibly spoken, the words that we've silently said in our hearts, the thoughts, some of our own deeds. We've seen it in the words and the works of others in our world. I wonder, do you take David, Paul, and God's perspective on this world? Do you believe what God's word says here about mankind? Do you believe that mankind is radically depraved and that this perversity is pervasive, touching every human heart? Now, in God's kindness, we are not as bad as we could be, right? The biblical doctrine of radical depravity does not express that, uh, does express um, that wickedness and sin has reached the very core of everyone's being, everyone's heart. That's the biblical doctrine of radical depravity. And is that not what we see here in Psalm 53, 1-3? That corruption has touched everyone. And all have sinned. Now this does not mean that we should leave here absolutely suspicious of everyone. But it does mean that we recognize that those outside of Christ are in need of a divine intervention. Everyone outside of Christ needs a new heart. A heart that no longer says there is no God. And it also means that if we have been found in Christ, if we've come to believe in Him and place our faith in Him by the gracious work of the Spirit, that we need to recall that our hearts are still in the process of being renewed. We still need to be changed because far too often, to our shame, our hearts proclaim from time to time there is no God. In humility, as Christians, we need to recognize that we have contributed to the brokenness of this world. And so pray that God would continue to renew us in the likeness of Jesus Christ. After recognizing the evil that he sees in the world, David turns and reflects upon the judgment coming to all evil. Let's turn now and consider our second point, reflecting on judgment. And as we do, read Psalm 53 verses 4 and 5. Let's read Psalm 53 verses 4 and 5. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon God. There they are, in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. David's uh, reflections here seem a little strange at first, don't they? Have those who work evil no knowledge? You know, at first glance, it, that question may seem like David is giving fallen humanity the benefit of the doubt. As though fallen humanity is ignorant of God and His righteousness. But David is actually not giving fallen humanity the benefit of the doubt. Rather, he is impressing upon us the depths of humanity's depravity. These evildoers do not wish to know God's ways and follow them. They are rejecting God and His ways, living as though there is no God. Of course they know that they are working evil. Of course they know that they are preying upon the people of God, devouring, demolishing, and destroying them. They are not acting as those devoid of knowledge concerning truth and righteousness. They are acting as those who are suppressing the knowledge of truth and righteousness. 
Romans chapter 1 teaches us that humanity, even in its depravity and fallenness, still has a great deal of knowledge about God and the world. It's not a saving knowledge to be sure, but it is an innate knowledge of knowing God and His righteous decree, of knowing what is right and wrong. So let me encourage you to keep one finger here and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We're going to read verses 18 to 25 of Romans chapter 1. That's on page 939 of the Bibles provided. Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 25 comes on the heels of Paul's uh, wonderful declaration that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ is a power that overcomes what we are about to read. Paul will unpack that good news as his letter goes on, but before he unpacks the good news, he shares some really bad news. And it is essentially what David has been saying in Psalm 53. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I wonder if you, you hear what Paul is saying here in Romans 1. He is saying that we know the truth about God by, being, by virtue of being made in His image and seeing the created world around us. That does not mean that we can come to saving faith without the gospel being proclaimed. It simply means that we intuitively know the natural realities of this world by virtue of being a human being, a person made in God's image. The problem is that even though we know the truth, we have suppressed the truth. The point that Paul makes and that David makes in Psalm 53 verses 4 and 5 is that God is not indifferent to man's rebellion. Verse 18 you see here in Romans 1. Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness of righteousness of men. Well, turning back to Psalm 53, because you kept your finger there in Psalm 53. Uh, that's page 475 of the Bible's Friday, in case you didn't. Turning back to Psalm 53, what we're seeing is that God will not sit idly by. Verse 4 also makes clear to us that the situation that first gave rise to this psalm was the oppression of the people of God. The evildoers are said to eat up the psalmists and therefore God's people like bread. Just think about that image for a minute to work it out a little bit. They eat up God's people like bread. The evildoers use people made in the image of God for their nourishment, satisfaction, and fulfillment. This is an image of exploitation, preying upon another human being. And sadly, we have several examples 
in the Old Testament where the wealthy in Israel would exploit the poor for, for, for further gain. Uh, perhaps the words of the prophet Amos come to your mind. Amos chapter 4 verse 1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. Amos, you see, he is condemning the lavish lifestyle of the rich and famous women of the northern kingdom of Israel who are crushing the poor and the needy. And sadly, exploitation has continued down through the ages in destructive forms. And destructive forms of exploitation still take place in our day. One form of exploitation that takes place in our day is failing to pay a worker a just wage. Now, sometimes we can justify our negotiation as an act of stewardship. And to be clear, sometimes that is an act of stewardship. But let us remember who we're negotiating with. We are negotiating with someone who is made in the image of God. Someone who needs to eat. Someone who perhaps needs to pay their employees and feed their family. We certainly don't want to be taken advantage of. But we shouldn't take advantage of others. And it strikes me that if we should be more concerned about one or the other of being taken advantage of or taking advantage of others, we should be concerned not to eat up other people as bread. We should be concerned, we should prefer to be taken advantage of over using people made in the image of God for our satisfaction and enrichment. Christian brothers and sisters, we should be known as people who are generous, not greedy. We should not be known as those who hoard but as those who help. And our God did not withhold His Son from us. We should be careful in our interactions with others, careful not to use others, careful to remember that they bear the image of God, the God whom we call Lord. Prostitution and pornography are pernicious ways, forms of exploitation and oppression. Have those who work such evil no knowledge. Repent. Aberrant forms of sexuality are yet another form of exploitation and oppression. Another devastating form of exploitation that occurs within our day is abortion. You know, a great many women are pressured into abortions that they do not want. Some suggest that more than half of women who have abortions felt pressured into them. With such immense pressure, are they really being given a choice? They are not really given a choice, and so they are exploited by their partners or their families. Sadly, some women do make that choice, and they make the choice at the cost of exploiting another image bearer, their unborn child. Now, if you're here this morning, and you have had an abortion, or you pressured someone into an abortion, then friend, brother, or sister in Christ, you need to remember the love and the grace and the forgiveness of our God. The man who wrote this psalm was a murderer and an adulterer. He exploited others. And just a few psalms earlier, Psalm 51, he prayed to the Lord and asked for forgiveness. And he was forgiven. He even promised to sing of God's righteousness. The innocent blood of the Lord Jesus Christ secures forgiveness and for us and for the innocent blood that we have shed. And if you are hurting and want help in walking through any of these very heavy things, 
please do speak with me or speak with another elder in this church. Speak with a a mature Christian friend about these things. Uh, We want to love you and care for you and walk with you in these things. There is healing and hope in Jesus Christ for all people and for all sins. The evildoers of Psalm 53 neither know God or call upon Him. They do not pursue the one true God for an intimate, loving, and humble relationship with Him. Nor do they pursue Him for mercy. And so, they will face His judgment. That is the burden that verse 5 carries. Scholars point out that the Hebrew of verse 5 carries some kind of interpretive difficulties. Um, and, And we can see that, I think, somewhat reflected in our English translations. Who is in great terror where there is no terror? How is that even possible, right? Well, to answer these questions, I think that we, need to, we need the help of the second half, really, of verse 5. Sometimes we come upon kind of confusing verse in our Bible reading. It's helpful to keep reading, to work from the clearer statements to the less clear statements. What is clear about the second half of verse 5 is that God will scatter the bones of the enemies of the people of God. He will put them, his enemies, to shame because he has rejected them in judgment. This is a divine warrior God conquering his enemies in battle, laying them out on the field. So the most likely understanding at the beginning of verse 5 is that while these evildoers are not presently in terror, they will one day face the terror of God's judgment. It's as if David is reflecting on what he knows about the future and seeing those who are presently free from terror suddenly terrorized by God's wrath. This way of reflecting on the coming judgment also highlights the suddenness of God's judgment. One moment, the evildoers, they're free from terror, going about their terror-free lives. And the next moment, their lives are full of terror and judgment. The New Testament depicts the wrath of God as coming suddenly too. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, Paul writes... For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Right? Unexpectedly, Paul is saying. While people are saying there is peace and safety where there is no terror, Paul is saying. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. They will not escape. See, the judgment promised here in Psalm 53 and confirmed throughout the rest of the teaching of the Bible is certain. It will be swift and sudden. Those who do not come to know God and worship His Son will face this judgment. And this is not unloving for me to say. Quite the opposite. I am telling you this out of love, care, and concern for your soul. Friend, if you are here this morning and you're not a believer and follower of Jesus, you may not be living in terror today. But if you continue on in rebellion against the God who made you and gave you life and breath, then one day you will face the terror of His wrath. So what should you do? Well, you should do what David does next. Call out to God for salvation. So let's turn and think about this more carefully. Having recognized the evil so pervasive in humanity, having reflected on the coming judgment of God, let's turn now and consider our third and final point. The request for salvation. As we do, let's begin by reading verse 6. Just the last verse of this psalm. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of His people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. 
What the people who first sang this song needed was deliverance from their enemies. And so they asked for salvation to come out of Zion. In the Old Testament, Zion referred to Jerusalem. It's often referred to as Jerusalem. But as the revelation of God progressed across time, Zion also came to have heavenly connotations. It would become the place from which God would consummate His world purposes, His worldwide purposes of salvation and judgment. And I wonder if you see the connection between verse 6 and verses 4 and 5. Judgment and salvation are opposite sides of the same reality. Judgment and salvation are opposite sides of the same reality. Much like one side of the coin is heads, and the other side of the coin is tails, still the same coin, For God to judge His enemies would be for God to save His people. This request for salvation is a request for judgment. When God comes to judge His enemies, He will simultaneously save His people and restore their fortunes. And all of this should lead to the joy and gladness of His people. Still in making this request, this psalm has introduced kind of something of a conundrum, hasn't it? It's introduced a conundrum that Only the whole storyline of the Bible can really resolve. Haven't we been told in this psalm that all of humanity is full of evil? Haven't we been told that there is no one who does good? I believe that we have. And not just once, but twice. We're told that in verses 1 and 3. And since all of humanity has been judged as being full of evil, all of humanity, therefore, is worthy of facing God's justice, His terror, His wrath. This request in verse 6 then is not just merely a request for God's people to deliver them from the earthly enemy, but also in light of the whole storyline of the Bible, this must also be a request for deliverance from their divine enemy. Is that really much different than what we need today? And the request that we need to make from God today, or for God today? I don't know about you, but I think that this psalm concludes in a most appropriate way by leading us to make the request needed for us to escape the terror of God. We need to pray and ask God to come from heaven to save us. And the good news of the Bible is that He did come from Zion and that He will come again. See, the Bible teaches us that the righteous Lord of heaven came to earth. That the eternal Son of God became man by taking to Himself a true human body and soul. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her. Yet, unlike us, He was born without sin. And He lived without sin. And His name was Jesus. He lived the perfectly righteous life that we have not. Every thought, every word, every deed for Him was a righteous deed. And that's the kind of righteousness that God's law required. His righteous Father, God in heaven, loved every single one of those righteous deeds. And God the Father even told us this about His Son. When He said from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. I love His life. I love that He came to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was perfectly righteous, perfectly sinless, and yet He gave up His life on the cross to pay our debt. See, our corruption, our sin, our abominable iniquity incurred a debt that had to be punished and paid. The Bible says that the wages of sin, the payment that's justly due to sin, is death. 
And that is what Jesus underwent. That is what Jesus was paid. Taking the punishment that our sins deserve, Jesus gave up His life so that we might be preserved from this judgment of God. Jesus took the Father's wrath. Verse 5, God the Father rejected Him. He drank the terrifying cup of God's wrath for our sin until there was nothing left for us to drink. So you see, on the cross, there was, there was this great exchange. Jesus took upon Himself our unrighteousness, our guilt, and our sin, and our shame. And He died bearing the punishment for it. And three days after His death, God the Father raised Him from the dead. He raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating Him and proving to us all that He really is righteous and that He loved every one of the righteous deeds of His Son. His resurrection proves to us that He was the start of a new humanity. He was the second Adam. And in order to be counted among that new humanity, in order to come out from under God's wrath, this morass of people who have rebelled against God, in order to come out from this group of which there is none righteous, we must place our faith in the one who is perfectly righteous. The one who never sinned, never committed abominable iniquity. And when we believe that Jesus lived for us, the righteous life that we have not lived, that He died for us, bearing the terror of God's wrath for our sin, and that He was raised from the grave in triumphant vindication of His righteousness, we receive all of His righteous deeds as our own. And in faith we hide ourselves in Him and so receive the salvation that came out of Zion some 2,000 years ago. Friend, if you're here this morning, and you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, would you turn from your wickedness and sin and come to Him in faith today? Take refuge in Jesus Christ today. And on the last day, you will behold the gracious face of the righteous Lord. Because you see, He is coming out of Zion again. Jesus will return at His Father's command. And when He comes again, He will return in judgment. This is what Jesus Himself said in John chapter 5, verses 26 to 29. Jesus said, For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to also have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment, because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear His voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. See, He will come out of Zion again. Jesus will come again. And rather than terrify you for your wickedness, if you hide yourself in Him in faith, He will smile upon you and be glorified by the faith of those who take refuge in Him. And if you want to think more about what it, this means, about what it means to take refuge in Jesus Christ by placing your faith in Him, Come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a Christian friend or family member that you came here with this morning. There's nothing more important that you can think about this morning than this good news of escaping this wrath pictured because salvation has come from heaven in Jesus Christ. And as we conclude, I want us to reflect upon the truth that when this final salvation comes, and until that 
final salvation comes, believers in Jesus Christ should rejoice and be glad. See, brothers and sisters in Christ, God has restored and is restoring us. He has restored to us the fortunes that Adam forfeited at the fall. And He has restored them in a far more glorious manner. All because of Jesus, we will live in the glorious eternal garden of the new heavens and the new earth. And unlike that first garden, the coming heavenly garden cannot be lost. So let us rejoice and be glad. Let us rejoice and be glad because our God has rescued us from this present evil age. Let us rejoice and be glad that in Christ our sins have been forgiven. And let us rejoice and be glad that salvation, that Jesus has come and that He will come again. Let's pray together.